when the Apostle Paul or Peter writes his first epistle in the mid-first century, there were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, meaning that one-third of the total population were slaves. It's going to be vital because I hope you're looking at your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter 2, the text. Our context begins with a discussion about slavery and servanthood. Aristotle called slaves living tools, and he couldn't even fathom a friendship between master and slave. Free men thought that manual labor was beneath them. That was for slaves, which, by the way, makes the Apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen, his labor as a tent maker so astounding. Roman slaves could be treated cruelly, even killed, without any penalties to the owner, But most masters did not abuse their slaves because slaves represented a high capital investment. And so it was to the advantage of the owner to at least physically take good care of his slaves, just as they would a farm animal. Now a quick Greek note here. Look at your text in verse 18. The word that is translated servants is the word oikete. It's not the normal Greek word for slave or servant. It means house slave. This wasn't racially driven slavery. Put all thoughts out of your mind of American history. Roman slavery was not racially driven slavery. You couldn't tell the difference between slave and free by ethnicity. How did people get to be slaves in the Roman Empire? Well, usually one of three ways. Children, usually females, were found abandoned on the trash heaps outside of Roman cities, and they were saved so they could become household slaves. A second way that you could be enslaved is people would get so far deep in debt they would sell themselves into slavery. And a third way, this was was probably even more likely how you became a slave, almost all prisoners of the Roman wars of conquest became slaves. So it's amazing that Peter would even speak to slaves at all. The fact he does so shows that there were slaves in the church and they were viewed as a vital part of the body. But the apostles do so with some frequency. And I want to remind you how often the apostles, especially Peter and Paul, speak to slaves. The point here is this was going to be a common part of every congregation, a large contingent of slaves. For example, in Ephesians 6, the apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, knowing there were slaves in the congregation, and he writes these words, bondservants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. He writes to the church in Colossae, same thing, slaves in the church. He writes, masters give your bondservants what is just and fair. He writes to the church at Corinth, does the same thing. The point that I'm trying to make here is that there are slaves. Every congregation, Paul writes, every city he goes to, there will be slaves. This is is an ongoing issue, a moral, ethical issue. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, Were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is still the Lord's freedman. He writes again to the church in Corinth and says, We by one spirit were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, have all been made to drink of the same Holy Spirit. He does it again 
in 1 Timothy, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says, Let as many as are bondservants under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. He does it again when he writes to Titus on the island of Crete. And Paul gives this pastoral advice to Titus. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters. And then there is the leading discussion of slavery in the New Testament. That is the whole book of Philemon about how a Christian slave should behave. Now you'll notice that neither Peter or Paul or Jesus do not say any of the following four things to slaves. Listen to me carefully. They don't say any of the four things to slaves. One, run away. Nor do they say, secondly, stage a slave rebellion. By the way, there was historical precedent. Spartacus had staged an escape and slave rebellion 100 years earlier. They don't say, third, go on a work strike. And fourth, they don't say, demand to be freed. In fact, in the book of Philemon, Paul is sending the converted runaway slave Onesimus back to his master, according to Philemon 16. You see, Peter and Paul, even our Lord Jesus, were under the profound conviction that social and political conditions were not the primary issue in life. Did you hear that? Peter and Paul and the Lord Jesus were under the profound condition that social, economic, political conditions were not the primary issue of life. But what was the primary issue of life was fellowship with God, freedom from sin, transformation into Christ's likeness, and the advance of the kingdom of God. These are the apostles' chief concerns. The proclamation of the gospel was the driving concern of the apostles. And the gospel works anywhere in any social, economic, or political condition. Nothing can hinder it, whether physical imprisonment or the social chains of slavery. In our own day, right now, the gospel is advancing rapidly in countries where there is violent persecution, spiraling downwards economies, and horrendous social conditions. Now, slavery did slowly die out in antiquity because of the influence of Christianity. By the way, that, what I just said, is the Christian model for social change. Progressive gradualism on the societal level. Just like transformation happens in the life of the individual believer. Progressive gradualism in sanctification. Now you'll remember that Paul had written to the congregation in Ephesus and he said in Ephesus 2 that no one in the congregation could treat any other member as a second class citizen but had to treat them as brothers or sisters. So slaves were baptized just like owners. Slaves came to the table and fed on Christ just as free men did. Slaves were elected elders and deacons. No wonder so many slaves were attracted to the church of Jesus Christ in the first century. As we begin our exposition, I'm going to plead with you to keep your copy of God's Word open because our text is deep, it's intricate, and it takes a sharp right turn about halfway through our text. And if you're not staring at the text and see that right turn, you're going to be confused and say, why was Carl talking about this and now he's talking about this? You'll notice that Peter does not even speak 
to masters about their Christian responsibilities. Look in vain for it. It's not there. Only slaves. And by this, most New Testament scholars have surmised this means that the early congregations in Asia Minor were largely made up of slaves. And so I want us to seek the Lord's help now. We will need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand this text rightly and for our edification and application. Let's pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth we might find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. We pray through Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen. Look at verses 18 through 20. And again, you will want to pay careful attention because you're going to think, oh, that's what we're talking about. And about midway through our context, we're going to take, as I said, a sharp right turn. But look at the first part of our context, where Peter gives instructions on how to work for unreasonable bosses. Nobody here would have ever dealt with that, right? Maybe you are the unreasonable boss, even. Well, look at verse 18, the Greek word for master. When you see servants be submissive to your master with all fear is the Greek word despot. And then the Greek word translated in verse 18, when Peter writes, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good in general, but also to the harsh. The word translated harsh is the Greek word scoliosis, meaning crooked bosses. So servants, notice what they are given, and surely surely we can make the argument from the greater to the lesser. If slaves were commanded to submit to unreasonable masters, surely employees who get paid and get time off, surely they must submit to their bosses. Servants, look at verse 18, they're given the imperative to submit to such despotic, crooked masters. Submit. Now, I want you to notice how frequently Peter uses this term. We just saw this term a couple of weeks ago. Look above this in 1 Peter 2.13. It's the exact same Greek word, hupotasso, describing how citizens should submit to the civil magistrate, the king, the president, the judge. And it will be, look down to 1 Peter 3.1, it will be the exact same Greek word used, hupotasso, submit, to describe a wife's submission to her husband. And what we are meant to see is all through scriptures, we find an ordered society. A moment ago, we used the words of our larger catechism to confess our faith. And our larger catechism rightly says, in the scripture, in a biblical worldview, the scripture knows of superiors, equals, and inferiors. And what we find in scripture is never egalitarianism, only hierarchy in the Old Testament and the New. God has mandated an ordered society. Look at what Peter doesn't say. Look at the text in verse 18 through 20. Look very carefully. Read between the lines. Peter doesn't say, obey your master if they're a believer. No, he commands you to obey your boss, period. God has ordained all kinds of authorities, husbands, presidents, bosses, and most of them are not believers. Peter knew the Roman government of his day was horribly pagan, but he commanded obedience to them just above in verse 13. Obviously, the only time a Christian citizen, a Christian wife, a Christian employee may disobey lawful authorities is when they order you to violate God's moral law. 
not just if you disagree with a managerial decision. And what Peter means here in verses 18 through 20 is the servant, the employee, is to have respect for the master and boss's position and authority. If you can't respect their person, at least respect their position, the fact that they are over you. In the case where a slave had a Christian master, the temptation towards disrespect could be easily intensified by their spiritual equality as a brother. In some cases, this could be further exacerbated because the slave may have been an elder, a deacon, a teacher in the church, and the master was actually instructed by him. This could easily produce disrespect in their day-to-day relationship. Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy 6.2 when he says, Those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because they are those who are benefited as believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. And what Peter is saying is the same thing that Paul is saying. There is no place in the Christian's life for insubordination, whether subtle or outright. You are to treat your superior with constant respect. In fact, look at the terminology Peter uses in verse 18. All fear. Be submissive to your masters with all fear. Paul has the same idea in mind when he writes in Romans 13 that the believer is to grant what is due to others. He says, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. And look at what Peter does in verse 19. He commends, he commends the submissive slave who labors on because of a sanctified conscience towards God. This slave, look at verse 19, and I want you to stay with me in the text and watch for the quick turn. In verse 19, Peter commends the submissive slave who labors on because of a sanctified conscience towards God. This slave, we're told, endures grief even though he's suffering wrongfully. The believing slave or employee puts off hypocrisy, strives to authentically labor for the pleasure of the boss and the glory of God. This believer, by the way, doesn't just work hard when the boss is watching. Paul expands this in Galatians 1, where he instructs the believer that our goal is never to be men-pleasers. All parading of diligence when the boss comes around and slackness otherwise stands condemned. That's what happened in the parable of the talents that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. Two servants were given five talents and two talents, and they immediately got to work even though the master was gone. When he returned, he praised them and said, Well done, good and faithful servants. But the servant who did nothing while he was gone, he buried his talent. The master gave this scathing indictment. You wicked, lazy servant. You see, the Christian employee doesn't need to be checked up on. He works just as hard when he makes minimum wage or if he gets a massive raise. These factors are incidental to him. He has higher motives. But notice now as the context begins to shift. There's a subtle shift. Look at verse 19 and 20. The apostle Paul commands patience under injustice. So right now there are some of you who tomorrow will go to a workplace where you think, my boss is a knucklehead. That guy got a raise and I didn't. My work conditions are harsh. And so what I need to do is gripe about it a lot. Notice what the apostle commands. Look at verse 19 and 20. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. 
Now let me just stop and ask. Do you know anything of enduring on the job? Anything at all? Of putting up with a harsh boss, master? Peter goes on in verse 20. What credit is it when you, if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, what I want to try to convince you of this morning is that we've just seen the key to this text. It's set right in the middle of the context. And that is the issue of patient endurance under trial. Look at verses 18 and 20. You notice that Peter commends this one who endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And then at the end of verse 20, he talks about suffering, taking it patiently. And what he is counseling to slaves then, employees now, is that when you're dealing with a, an egregiously unreasonable boss... But the Christian response is endurance, patience. If you get fired or get a pay cut because of your faults, look at the first part of verse 20. If those things happen because of your faults, that's not commendable. It is only when, look at the text, and I want you to hear the text, what it's saying. It is only when you are treated unjustly and you exercise the fruit of the Spirit that is commendable. Do you notice how living the Christian life and the exercise of the fruit of the Spirit is to come into the workplace? I've known believers who say, Carl, I don't work for a Christian boss and he's unreasonable. He won't let me hold witnessing sessions on the clock. That's not unreasonable. Your unbelieving boss is out to make a profit. But you know what you can always do as a believer? How nobody can forbid you? You can exercise the fruit of the Holy Spirit on the clock. Love, joy, look at it in the text, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. That is where the Christian life merges into the workplace is as you exercise the fruit of the Spirit, as you exercise patience. I want you to notice, now we are turning turning the corner in our context. Peter says, This is your calling. Now, I want there to be no misunderstanding what Peter is saying is your calling. Look at verse 21. He says, for to this you were called. What does he mean? He's saying, you were called to suffer injustice and to patiently endure. That's your calling. So if you're that guy who goes in and the the boss just kind of gives you a cross-eyed look or you don't get as much of a raise as you thought and you think, I didn't sign up for this, I'm above this, people shouldn't treat me this way. Yes, they should. Look at verse 21. This is your calling as a believer. That's why the writer of the Psalms can say in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Or why Paul can write in 2 Timothy 3, all, all that's everyone All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All Christians. This is what Peter is trying to get across at the beginning of verse 21. All Christians are called to undergo hardship, unfairness, distress before they are ushered into glory. 
You see, we can laugh at the health and wealth gospel, but we fall into it just as well when we think, I shouldn't be treated poorly. My friend, here's our motto. First the cross, then the crown. In this lifetime, this is when you're called to bear the cross. First the cross, then the crown. This is why Jesus could say in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You see, suffering, even on the job, suffering for the Christian is not bad luck or something to be avoided. It's your calling. Stare at verse 21. The next time somebody asks you, what is your calling? To suffer. To go to work and suffer. To be treated poorly. It's your calling because it was first Christ's calling and Jesus calls us to follow him. Did you hear that? It is your calling because first it was Christ's calling and Jesus calls us to follow him. Remember how Jesus said that so clearly? He said things like this. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. How do you follow Jesus? You follow him in his suffering. You follow him in his harsh treatment. You follow him in being unfairly dealt with. Peter began his letter in chapter 1 verse 2 by speaking of the believer's election. His calling to glorious union with Christ now. And Peter in a moment in chapter 5 verse 10 will conclude his letter by telling his readers that they are called to eternal glory. But between those two affirmations of calling, look at verse 21. Peter tells you every believer's call runs right through the path of suffering. So the believer who wants to look at their vocational situation and say, this has to be a mistake. You can't treat me that way. I'm one of the called. Yes, you are living the life of the called right now as you're dealt poorly with. You are living out God's sovereign calling now. Now, now notice how the context takes the hard shift. Look at verse 21 through 23. Why? Why, and this is the question that so many who, who are dealing with unjust bosses, poor work conditions, why they want to ask. Carl, why? Why does God call the believer to suffer injustice and suffering and hardship? Look at the second part of verse 21. For to this you were called because, here comes the answer, pay careful attention. This will impinge on your work day tomorrow. To this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, a model, that you shall follow in his steps. You remember that Jesus told his disciples the night before the cross, no servant is greater than his master. And since the master has suffered, you'll suffer too. The apostle Paul concurs in Philippians 1 and says, to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. For his sake. God has a greater plan for you. Your plan is so small. God has a greater plan for you than you have for yourself. Your plan for you is ease and comfort. His plan for you is trials, suffering, hardship to conform you to the image of Christ. There's a gospel element to your suffering. 
as you read verses 21 through 23. Every time you suffer unjustly, every time you suffer and do so silently, you are showing the world, listen carefully because here's the gospel. You think in a passage about work that we could stay clear of the gospel. No. Every time you suffer injustice and you do so silently, you are showing the world a replay of the saving work of Christ. How did Jesus save his elect? By suffering injustice. Did you hear that? How did Jesus save his elect? By suffering injustice. Now look carefully at verse 22 and 23. And what you see, if you even have the faintest remembrance of just a few minutes ago when Pastor Dodds read Isaiah 53, you will notice that Peter is quoting Isaiah 53 here. And when he, he's making his point that our work situation should imitate Christ's suffering for sinners, Peter draws on that passage known as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And notice what Peter asserts. Look at verse 22 and 23. He said, in the midst of his atoning work for sinners, Jesus refused to succumb to sin. By the way, this shows us the importance of the sinlessness of Christ. We're told about it in verse 22, that he committed no sin. Peter, by the way, is saying that as an eyewitness. When Peter says he committed no sin, this is a Peter who was with Jesus 24 hours a day for three and a half years. If Jesus would have ever turned him, watched with a lustful look an attractive woman go by for three or four seconds, Peter would have seen it. If Jesus would have, in a moment of anger, said a harsh, profane word, Peter would have heard it. But this is an eyewitness. And he can say, I've watched him for three and a half years. And here's my assessment. He committed no sin. How vital this is. If Jesus would have lived sinlessly for 99.9% of his life, but sin in his last hours, you wouldn't have a savior. In order for Jesus to save you, he must be sinless in word, thought, and deed from conception until death. Then he has a spotless, earned, perfect righteousness that he can give you. Look at the specific case study in sin. Look at verse 22. Peter says, He committed no sin in the specific example, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And here Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, 7. And he says it again in verse 23, that Jesus did not engage in, let's call it reciprocal reviling. You remember what men were saying to Jesus in his last hours. They spat on him, rained down blows on him mockingly said, Hail, King of the Jews. When he was hanging on the cross, we're told that people were casually walking by, according to Matthew's gospel, and blaspheming him, wagging their heads. Look what we're told in verse 23. He did not revile in return. No comebacks, no threats, no statements like, I will be off this cross and out of the tomb in three days, and when I do, you're going to get it. Nothing like that. By the way, this was not new that Jesus refuses to revile his critics 
All through his public ministry, he was called a glutton, a wine-bibber. He was even called Beelzebub. Never did he revile his accusers. In his suffering, Jesus didn't threaten wicked creatures, but look at what the key is in verse 23. And this is how you may go to work tomorrow and suffer under an unjust, unrighteous boss. Here's the key. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. One of the amazing elements of the crucifixion was that Jesus could have escaped it all. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have reversed the schemes of Jewish leaders. He could have caused Pilate to stick to Roman justice and release him. But look at what he did do in verse 23 at the end. He entrusted himself to the tender care of his loving father. This is to be our model when we are being unfairly treated in the workplace, is to trust our Father, that he has put us in the position that is best for us, that will be for our sanctification the most. Let me make several applications of this text. The first is this context begins in verse 18 as a text about superiors and inferiors in the workplace. The Christian employee realizes they do their work not for a boss but for the master. They get out of the bed every morning with zeal and energy because they're going to work for Christ. They have a much higher goal than having a job or earning an income. They're set free from earthly servility and their labors take on a heavenly cast. The Christian employee, you see, seeks first and foremost the glory of Christ in their home, in their family, in their job. Parents, let me speak to you for just a moment. When you think about where do your children learn to work, not just learn to work hard, but learn to do what's contained in this text, they learn it from you. And I speak to parents, moms and dads regularly who desire to know what what are the cornerstones of how I should be raising my children. And I always encourage them to begin with the creation ordinances, labor, Sabbath, marriage. That you should teach and model a picture of a biblical marriage with biblical roles and love and sacrifice. A model of a Lord's Day practice where you rest and enjoy God's people all the day long. And teach your children to work. How to be on time, how to be early, how to stay late, how to do what your boss tells you, how to persevere even under an unreasonable boss. Notice what our text is doing. Peter is telling you this exact same thing. The the ideas that I would tell you about how to raise your children is not just something that's from the Dale Carnegie School of How to Win Friends and Influence People. It is biblical. Now, to sweeten your obedience to your boss, remember this. The Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, obeyed parents, teachers, synagogue elders, bosses at work, civil magistrates, and in every case, every case, he did so promptly, joyfully, completely, and unquestioningly. This same Jesus worked hard, even though he was the one who had spoken wood into existence. He sawed it. He swept shavings. He worked six days a week. He knows how to work under difficult conditions. And so when you go to him as your sympathetic high priest, he can sympathize with you. That's the one to go to if you feel you have an unjust boss. You shouldn't tell everyone in the workplace and everyone in the neighborhood and then get on Facebook for good measure and tell them too. If you have an unjust boss, 
Go to the one person who truly can sympathize, our sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to live and work under unreasonable conditions. Now, we are preaching Christ. You notice that we're not just to preach Christ as Savior. That's a truncated and diminished Jesus. We have not preached Christ until we've preached him in all of his offices. Prophet, priest, king, creator, judge. And here we preach him as Lord of work and life. Now, look at our text. Why does Peter tell you when you are beaten for your faults to take it patiently and that God will right all wrongs, all injustice and oppression? Because soon you will know and everyone will see that you serve a master who is kind, generous, and just. Soon you'll be honored, befitting the one who's a joint heir with Jesus Christ. This perspective, the reward that awaits you, will lift your hearts and stop all your complaining about your horrible boss, your terrible work conditions, your low pay, your long hours, your dead-end job. With this understanding that a reward awaits, you can bear any cross because it will be richly repaid by Jesus on the last day. The believer understands that while the manager may not see all his labor, the master does. He's omnipresent. The master sees every extra effort, on a sweat, your care to get 40 hours work for 40 hours pay, and at the last day, he will reward you. This should drive you infinitely more than the promise of a raise or a promotion. I've spoken often about my mom, Janice Robbins, and her Christian work ethic. She may have only been five feet tall, but she had the biggest Christian work ethic of anybody I've ever known. And mom knew her Bible and her hymnal backwards and forwards. When I was preparing to preach her funeral, which was by far the greatest honor of my ministry, nothing even comes close second, I was talking on the phone to her pastor, Brother Bruce. And I asked Brother Bruce, um, what songs will we be singing at mom's funeral? And he read me her choices and then he hung up and I didn't think about it until I looked and studied them and the last song she wanted us to sing was a song that it took me decades to love when the role is called up yonder but it all made sense because it was mom the stanza goes let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun let us talk of all his wondrous love and care then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done and the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. Let's pray together. Our Father, tomorrow as we go to our work, remind us of this word. Give us zeal to labor for Christ. Give us humility under our bosses, even in harsh, unfair conditions. Enable us to demonstrate the gospel that we serve a Savior who submitted to injustice and unfairness, even cruel murder.